Kevin is for real. Todd Burpo, uh, Wesleyan pastor out in uh, Nebraska, writes uh, about a struggle I think many parents can identify with. Uh, made it a little bit more difficult, I guess, by his son's uh, experience uh, where he says he's to heaven and come back. Uh, his little boy's name's Colton. He was little then. He's a teenager now. Uh, but he was... Uh, uh, he, he relates this uh, this event in uh, in the book. Heaven is real. As smart as Colton was about so many things, there was one thing he just couldn't seem to grasp. If a human body meets a moving car, bad things happen. No matter how hard they try to teach him. Don't run off from us in the parking lot. Don't run out into the street. He just never seemed to get it. So, Pastor Burpo says, one day I bought, bought us vanilla cones, one for Colton, one for me. And true to form, when we walked out the door of the store, he took his treat and darted out into the parking lot, which was only a few dozen feet from the bro- from Broadway. Hard in my throat, I yelled, Colton, stop! How many parents have ever done that? Raise your hand. Not to Colton, but to some of the kids. Okay. He put the brakes on, and I jogged up to him red in the face, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure too. Son, you can't do that. How many times have we told you that? Just then I noticed a little... I just noticed a little pile of fur in the middle of Broadway. Easy one I thought was a teachable moment. I pointed to it. See that? Colton took a look at his ice cream cone and followed my finger with his eyes. That's a bunny who was trying to cross the street and it didn't make it, I said. That's what can happen if you run out and a car doesn't see you. You can not only get hurt, you could die. Colton looked up to me and grinned over his tone and said, Oh, good. That means I get to go back to heaven. I just dropped my head, Pastor Burpo says. I just dropped my head and shook it, exasperated. How do you scare some sense into a child who doesn't fear death? Finally, I bent down on one knee and looked at my little boy and said, You're missing the point. This time, I get to heaven first. I'm the dad. You're the kid. Parents go first. Well, I'm hoping that by now, since since, uh, Colton has made it to be a teenager, he's learned not to run out in front of cars. Uh, But I think the Apostle Paul wants all of us to have a little bit of this kind of uh, Colton point of view as we approach life. He wants all of us who follow Jesus to see life differently because we're focused on Jesus. And the fact that Jesus is in heaven and that's our home. Listen to what he says. We're going to go to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be reading through the chapter of Colossians and into chapter 4. It sounds terribly long, but it really isn't. Trust me. 
I'm a preacher. Yeah, I, I, thanks for saying it out loud. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the first four verses, and then we're going to just going to keep working our way through a little bit at a time. Paul says to the Christians in Colossae, town of Colossae, Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When heaven is your hope and your confidence, it will shape your decisions. It will shape the way you look at life. Paul saying to them, set your heart on things above. Set your minds on things above. That's where the important things are. That's where Jesus is. Focus on Him. Look at this world differently. When heaven is your hope, your confidence, it will shape your decisions. So how does that work out in our daily life? If I was the Apostle Paul, I would go, I'm glad you asked. Since I'm just his representative this morning, I'm glad you asked. The first thing that will happen in our lives when we have heaven as our hope and our confidence and it shapes our decision is that some things about our old life simply must be killed. I tried to find a, you know, a nice way to say that. But listen to what Paul says. Put to death. What do you do when you put something to death? Oh, sure. Now you get quiet. What do you do when you put something to death? You kill it. If it's edible. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In the church, we're different. In God's family, we've been changed. For what Paul is saying, and there's stuff about the old life that has to be killed. Now, in order for us to deal with this, I, I'm going to borrow uh, a concept I received from one of my mentors, uh, Keith Drury. 
CIP. That's how I remember it. Can't be chip. I don't know what. It's CIP. First thing is capacity. Everyone has the capacity to sin. Now let me make this perfectly clear. Every one of us has the capacity to sin in any and every possible, imaginable way. And probably a few you haven't ever thought of. The moment we stop thinking, I'm capable of anything, we're missing the message of the cross. The message of the cross is every single one of us is capable of sin. Well, I would never do... Okay, that brings us to the second one. Inclination. We have different inclinations. Because of personality, background. All of us are tempted by different things. Fortunately, most of our parental uh, parents uh, brought us up not to believe in killing others. Right? I mean, if we seriously believed in survival of the fittest, there wouldn't be much of us around. Are you getting this? There are things that we are inclined to do that other people are not inclined to do. Things that I, I don't particularly find it all appealing. The idea of grabbing a gun, putting on a ski mask, and going down to 7-Eleven and robbing it does not appeal to me. I think it's stupid. There are other people that think that that's the best way to get about. They're inclined to do it. There are things that you're thinking right now, I would never do that. Well, that's because you're not inclined to do it. But don't forget, you have the capacity to do it. There is not a single thing that you can imagine that given the right circumstances and the right situation, you might probably possibly do it. Just not inclined to. The final thing is practice. Practice the sin. See, there are things that we're inclined to do that we don't do. We don't practice them. Now, can I just be perfectly honest? That might scare some people. Yeah, I'll do it anyway. There, there are times when I am inclined to murder. Oh, not you, Pastor. Something my family would tell you. Yeah, and by the way, murder, it may be. My chosen weapon is tongue, not gun. 
But it still works. Is there something else? Is there another weapon I have? That you no? There are things that some of us are inclined to do that we would never do, that we think about, that we wish would happen, you know, kind of daydream about, but we don't do because we don't want to get caught. It's another reason not to rob 7-Eleven. Because you will probably get caught. Because you're not nearly as smart as you think you are. First of all, you chose 7-Eleven. <laughs> there are a lot of other places with a lot more cash than 7-Eleven. Okay, that's all I'm saying. We all have this capacity to sin. We all have inclinations to particular sins that may or may not be the same as ever the person sitting next to us. And we all have had practice of sin. Things that we've done. And Paul says to us, this has to die. Kill it. Start here. Kill the practice. Whatever it is, you need to kill it. One of the fastest ways to kill my particular problem with slicing and dicing. Apologize. Jesus can help us here. The capacity is going to be there. We're going to have to deal with this until we're in heaven. Some of this stuff has to be killed. And it starts here. Things that I used to do. The attitudes I used to have. Those things have to die. If they're not like Jesus... It's got to go. Another reason I like the word kill, there's always some struggle involved there. Some things in our old life, from our old life, simply have to be killed. Second thing Paul tells us is there are new things from our new life that must take the place of the dead ways of our old life. Maybe I should repeat that because that was a long sentence, wasn't it? New things from your new life must replace the dead ways of your old life. Listen to what he says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I'm going to read that again, just... 
Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Kill it. Kill it. Kill this capacity to sin. Kill the inclinations. Particularly kill the practice of sin. Well, that sounds good. What are we going to do? God gives us a new capacity. Capacity to obey Him. There is not a single thing that He could ask you to do that you do not have the ability to do. The moment He asks you, you have whatever you need to do it. This is a lesson I've been recognizing and seeing in some of the miracles that Jesus performed. He goes into a synagogue and there's, there's a man whose hand is shriveled. It's been that way for who knows how long. And Jesus says to him, stretch out your hand. The moment he tells him to do it, he has everything he needs to do he's never been able to do before. Paralyzed man is let down through the roof. Jesus looks at him and says, pick up your bed and walk. Now he could have said, you crazy man, it took four guys to get me here. They carried me on my bed. How am I supposed to pick this thing up and go home? But when Jesus said, pick it up, he had everything he needed to pick it up. There is not a thing he can ask you to do. There's not a person he can ask you to forgive that you don't have the ability to forgive. Because when he asks you, he's giving you everything you need. Not a person you cannot love. Because when he's asked you to love them, he's given you everything that you need to love them. He has given us the capacity to think, to act, and relate to others the way Jesus did. Jesus summarized. Uh, his life with, these, uh, with something like this. We'll phrase one something like this. I do and say what my Heavenly Father tells me to do and say. I always say what He tells me to say. I always do what He's doing. We have the capacity to be like Jesus. We have new inclinations, inclinations to obey. Some things are easier for some people than they are for others. 
Some things are more enjoyable. Some things Jesus asks us to do or to say are easier for us than it is for other people. Some things are easier for them than it is for us. Some people are just patient by nature. For some of us, we need to be reminded that we have whatever it takes to be patient. Even though we're not particularly inclined to it. Don't say amen. People know who the impatient ones are. You understand what I'm saying? Some people it's easy to be gentle. That's their personality. For others, it's not easy. For some it's easy to have peace. They were born laid back. Or they became laid back because God made them laid back when they received Jesus. There are other people, they're wound so tight. Even talking to them about being at peace makes them scared. One more thing for me to worry about. We have inclinations. And just because it's easy for you doesn't necessarily mean it's easy for the next person. But just because I'm not inclined to it doesn't mean I get off the hook. Because he's given me a new capacity, remember? Whether I'm inclined to be patient or not, whether I'm inclined to be at peace or not, whether I'm inclined to be compassionate or not, He has given me everything I need to be patient, kind, compassionate, even holy. Calls us new practices. practice of obey. We're free to obey the Father. We're free to follow Jesus' example. And so we can begin to take those things that used to control our lives and replace them with obedience. The frustration and the anger can be replaced with compassion and kindness. The pride can be replaced with humility. The bitterness can be replaced with forgiveness. So first of all, there's some things from the old life that have to be killed. There's some new things from the new life that will replace the dead things from the old life. And the third thing is, we're not done messing yet. The third thing is, your relationships will need an overhaul. Listen to what he says. Boy, am I diving into deep stuff now. Be careful. Wives, 
Submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers and mothers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be, pay, be repaid for the wrongs. And there is no favoritism. Masters, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in it. Now, this is a condensed version of something Paul wrote and sent to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And these directions in Ephesians chapter 5 are based on the principle of mutual submission. Paul instructs them to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the moment we talk about submission, we need to understand that we're talking about submitting to each other, not forming some kind of hierarchy. Well, then who's in charge of the house? Who's the head of the house? Well, it's not the husband. Don't say amen yet, ladies. It's not the wife. And it's not what the lady in the big fat Greek wedding said either. Those of you who know what she said laughed. The rest of you all remind. The husband may be the head of the house, but the wife is the neck, and she can turn him wherever she wants him to go. That's not the way it works. Christ families, the head of the house is Jesus. Not the husband, not the wife. Jesus. Well, how will anything ever get decided? Well, yeah, do what Jesus says to do. I have, I, never mind. I have a real problem with people who don't understand this concept. I have to apologize sometimes. <laughs> Who's in charge of the family? Is it the parents? No. Is it the kids? Oh, please, no. It's Jesus. Jesus is in charge. Not parents, not children. Jesus. Who do you work for? Well, it's not the company, not the man, it's not yourself. Jesus, you serve Jesus no matter what your position or title, you serve Jesus. If you're a slave, you serve your master. Okay, let's change this because none of us are slaves. If you're an employee... You serve your employer. 
Because you know, one day you're going to be rewarded by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who's over all of it. And you do your best for your employer because you want to do your best for Jesus. You work for Jesus, not your boss. By the way, if you work for Jesus and not your boss, your boss is going to notice. I could do a little preaching here, but I'm just going to let that soak. The boss, by the way, needs to remember that they are for the ultimate boss, who will also reward them for what they did or did not do. So it doesn't matter what your position or your title is. Who do you work for? I work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, starting verse 2, chapter 4, Jesus' life mission will become your life mission. When heaven is your hope and your confidence, it will shape your decisions, and his mission will become your mission. Listen to what Paul says to them. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the message of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Season with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The foundation of our prayers is to expand God's family. To expand his kingdom. We want as many people as possible to be a part of the family and to be in heaven with us. And so we pray for it. The foundation of our prayers. Devote yourselves to prayer. Pray for us that the door will be open. Pray for us that we can proclaim the mystery. Pray that I proclaim it clearly. By the way, I'm sure Paul would add here, Pray the same thing for yourselves. Because you're to make every, most of every opportunity. The basis of our words and actions, the basis is to expand God's family, His kingdom. We seek and seize every opportunity that the Holy Spirit provides for us to be able to tell people about Jesus and what He's done for us. take a moment and make a, a short little plug for the Wesleyan Life magazine that's on the shelf right out there next to the basket holding the bulletins. I would encourage you to grab a copy of it. Take it home. They're free. And there's some really good stuff in there. In fact, there's an article from my mentor who taught me this stuff, Keith Murray. An article entitled Glory Forever. And in that article he says this. Seeing heaven as the goal of life changes how we view this world. It makes us think this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Sure, we work to bring love, joy, and peace to this world. But all our praising, our work, 
Our learning and service here are merely practice for heaven. We work now, but we know that soon, very soon, we are going to see the King. In the scope of eternity, it will be but a moment that we go in heaven, we will see Christ face to face. Pastor's been 2,000 years. But in the scope of eternity, 2,000 years is less than a split second. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know when we're going to see Jesus face to face. It could be before lunch. It could be before tomorrow morning. It could be after we're long gone. But there will be a day when we stand in His presence face to face. It's so easy for us to look at our circumstances here. See, Keith Jury goes on to say, when we see life from an eternal perspective, things look different. Suffering seems temporary. Remember what Paul called it? These light and momentary troubles. Suffering seems temporary. Anxious reports of murders or terrorism seem fleeting. Death becomes a transfer station. We're already citizens somewhere else, and we're just passing through this world. It is really easy for us to focus on our situations and our circumstances, and when we do, we become short-sighted. We become short-sighted in our decisions and in our choices. We go for the option that appears best to us at the moment. Only a good nine point five times out of ten to regret it later. Sometimes as soon as right after we've made it. A decision that looks so right at that moment is simply wrong. I believe we need to develop a, a focused, focused perspective our decision making and the only way to have that kind of perspective is to start asking questions before we decide questions like how will I feel about this decision two seconds after I see Jesus face to face is this going to be the one one of those ones that go back here you know how that is do you have a cookie in your hand, Mark? Show me your hand. Show me the other one. Yeah. That's what I thought. Show me both of them at the same time. Is that going to be one of those decisions we try to hide behind our backs? Knowing full well, he already knows what's back there, but we're just going to try to pretend he doesn't. Or is it going to be one of those ones we go, well, thank you for helping me do this one. Thank you for helping me make this decision. How will I look at this decision two seconds after I see this face to face? Another way to ask is, will this choice follow me into eternity? Or is this something that I'm really not going to worry about? 
I have an acquaintance who wrote a book entitled, Should Christians Wear Purple Socks? Now, I have my own answer to that. <laughs> uh, but uh, there, there's some things we worry about that we really don't need to worry about. The grocery store, when they say, do you want paper or plastic? There's an argument for both. Well, paper can be recycled, so can plastic. Plastic uses natural resources, so does paper. Well, plastic piles up, so does paper. You can do all kinds of stuff with plastic bags, too. Including suffocating. Oh, I mean... Sorry. Apology. Sorry. I had a capacity. I'm telling you. you got to watch that thing. So is it something I'm going to worry about? Is this something that's going to go into... Is this an eternal thing? Or is this a temporary thing? Somebody once harassed me because I was using foam plates. You know those foam plates will be here a billion years from now. And I said, only if Jesus hasn't come back. We granted there are probably better things than you. By the way, don't use a foam plate in the microwave. If you haven't figured that out, I do. It's a great way to have plastic food. Paper plates. Will, what will honor God about this decision the most? What will point other people to Jesus when I make this decision? Those are the kinds of questions we need to ask as we're making decisions so that we don't come up. You know, we do the best we can. We pray about them and we're not always going to be right. Let's be honest. But if we talk about it, think about it, and pray about it, and seek the one thing that, the, the decision that's going to honor Him the most. The decision that's going to matter two seconds after we see Him face to face. We have a better chance of not blowing it. Than if we just go, hmm, what could be? The book of Proverbs has a summary for that. There's a way that looks right to a man. But the end of it is death. We want to find a way that looks good to him. That leads to life. So the question we have to ask this morning, because we have the capacity... Capacity to do this. Am I ready to start making my decisions in light of heaven? Am I ready to start asking, how will I look at this two seconds after I see Jesus? We have what it takes. Will we do it?